A reading from the book of 1 Samuel. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. The word of the Lord. We are doing a sermon series this fall leading up to Advent, um, and it's called After God's Own Heart, and it's on the life of David. David the runt, David the shepherd, David the musician, David the brave warrior, David the poet, David the leader of men, the anointed one, the great king, but also David the conniving David the adulterer, David the mass murderer, David the bad father, and David the abject failure. David's life in all of its complexity, full of great faith and terrible failures, points us beyond itself to great David's greater son. David the king is but a pale shadow of the king of kings, but he is a shadow nonetheless. And there's so much we can learn from him, because looking at the shadow, we can learn to see the light. And we see that even in our passage this morning, which is admittedly a rather obscure incident from the life of David. I I have to say that this was the easiest sermon preparation I've done in quite some time, because the commentaries basically had nothing to say about this incident. It it barely registered a, a, a few sentences worth of notice. And you may have noticed that this, this passage actually comes from two different places. In, you know, originally, Samuel was just one scroll. You know, it's one long book, but they have to cut it in two, so you know, that's why we get first and second Samuel. But they come from very different places. And so this, this, this first one comes, but then the end of second Samuel, it's like the end of David's life, and so they just tack on a bunch of stuff that didn't fit anywhere else. And, and this is telling the exploits of some of David's mighty men, those, those warriors who, who supported him and were loyal to him and enabled his rise to power. But they're incidents that belong together. And so just a brief update on where we are in David's life. So David, at this point, he's been anointed by uh, the prophet Samuel. He's going to be the next king of Israel, but no one seems to have heard about it at this point. David has slain the giant Goliath. He's successfully warred against the Philistines. He's become best friends with, David's, uh, with Saul's son, Jonathan. He's even married Saul's daughter, Michael. David is in the family. David is a made man at this point. But Saul hates David. 
with an irrepressible hatred. And so he wants to kill him, and David gets wind of this plot against his life, and he runs away. He has too much respect for Saul to try to usurp him, but he's too smart to stay put. So David goes on the lamb. Uh, he, he, he goes to this town called Nob, where he allies to the priest, uh, Ahimelech, and he eats the sacred bread. And, and David, when he meets the priest, he says, well, I'm on a secret mission from Saul. And it's so secret that I can't tell you anything about it. Now, please give me some food. And, and so he eats the sacred bread. And he says, you know, basically, Ahimelech, you don't have the necessary security clearance in order to, to know what I'm doing here. And then David eats the bread, and he says, in effect, oh, I left so quickly on this super secret mission that I just forgot my weapons. And so do you have anything lying around that maybe I could use? And Ahimelech goes, oh, I actually have a sword here, the sword of Goliath the giant who you slayed. And, 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 and so David takes this sword and he runs away and he's so desperate um, that he shows up in this town called Gath. And it's a Philistine town. And it just so happens to be the town where Goliath is from. So David shows up in Goliath's hometown with Goliath's sword and he quickly realizes this is a very bad situation. And so he pretends to be crazy. It says that, that, that spittle filled his beard and so uh, the, the, the Philistine king of Gath says, do I have any shortage of madmen, of, of crazy people in my kingdom? Away with him. So that's where we meet David in our passage. On the run for his life, having just lied to a priest, having just pretended to be crazy. Right? He who was once the golden boy, right? The, 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 the toast of all of Israel is now at the low point of his life. He's a pariah. He had lived in the king's palace, and now he's hiding in a cave. Our low points have a lot to teach us, probably just as much or more than the high points of our lives. And so we're going to look at three things this morning that David's story teaches us at this point. Uh, the, the cave, the thirst, and the offering. The cave and what it teaches us about the kingdom of God. Uh, David's thirst and what it teaches us about the human condition. And lastly, David's offering that he pours out and what that teaches us about how to live in the world. The cave, the thirst, and the offering. So, all right, here we go. First, the cave and what it teaches us about the kingdom of God. So, David runs from the cave and we're told that his family joins him at the cave. And, and what we need to understand about David's family at this point, his father and his brothers is they have not been the most supportive family at this point in time. Uh, when Samuel was coming around to, to see which one of Jesse's sons, that's David's father, which one of Jesse's sons would be the anointed, the next king, his dad didn't even bother to bring him in from the field. And when David had gone to deliver some cheese to the front lines, to his brothers, as they were facing off against the Philistines, he started asking questions, and his brother said, you're, just, you're, you're here as a spectator. Go home. His brothers don't have a lot of love for him. But, but they know that if they stay in their hometown of Bethlehem, Saul is going to go out there and he's going to find them and he is going to kill them. Because David's family knows that because of their relationship to David, they are now a threat to Saul. Because they represent an alternative line and an alternative reign, an alternative kingship that is opposed to Saul's reign. 
David's person, his, right this, at this point, he is revolutionary. Being associated with David is revolutionary and his kingdom. And that's the first thing that the cave teaches us about the kingdom of God is that it is revolutionary. That it says to the rulers of this world there is someone else who is in charge and it's not you. Someone else who we acknowledge as king and it's not you. And that is very, very threatening to the existing power structures of this world because the kingdom of God knocks rulers off their thrones. That's why historically countries that are most hostile to Christianity are usually the totalitarian type, right? Think of the Soviet Union in in the 20th century. Continues today, especially in a place like North Korea, right? The Kim family gets something about the kingdom of God that many of us can miss. That, That if you have a bunch of people running around whose primary loyalty is not to you, but to another king, that threatens your rule, your control. So the kingdom of God, we see at the cave, the kingdom of God is revolutionary. And the second thing we learn about the kingdom from the cave is that who this revolution is for and the kind of people that it comes through. All right, so David runs to the cave. He's afraid. He's alone. Then his family comes and joins him. And then another group of people join David, a very, very interesting group of people. It reads in verse 2 of chapter 21, it says, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. So the people who are attracted to David are the distressed, the indebted, and everyone who was bitter in soul. The kingdom is for distressed, indebted, and bitter people. This explains a lot about the church. I think if we, stop, if we stop and think about it. But I want to look at each and every one of these groups because they tell us something interesting about who the kingdom is for and who it comes through. Right? So the distressed. And this is a, is a Hebrew word. It comes from a Hebrew word that, that means a narrow place. So a person who is in distress is a person who is living in a narrow place. Almost always when it's used in Scripture, it's a person who's living in a city that is under siege, right? And when you're living in a siege, you know, you're literally surrounded and, and sort of the walls are closing in on you. Think of the, the trash compactor scene in Star Wars. Walls are closing in. It's a narrow place. This is not minor distress. This is serious strain. Life has thrown everything at these people. And it seems like there's no escape. The kingdom of God is for and comes through such people, people who feel trapped by their current circumstances. Then there's the indebted. And these aren't just people, you know, who've run up too much money on their credit cards. Right? This is what we would call the permanent underclass. People who are in debt because of economic exploitation and oppression, right? People against whom the deck is stacked so much that they can never get ahead and all they can do is fall farther and farther and farther behind, right? The more they owe, the more the rich and the powerful own them. The kingdom of God is for and comes through such people. And lastly, there's the bitter in spirit. Other translations say that the discontented people that life has left bitter and broken. The kingdom of God is for and comes through such 
people. And the picture we get at the cave is that God's kingdom speaks most powerfully to and comes most powerfully through those people for whom the status quo is just not working. The kind of people who have nothing to lose, people who are desperate for a savior. Why are these people attracted to David? Because David is one of them, right? David was the eighth son of Jesse. He was a nobody. He was a runt. He was the one left to do the dirty work watching the sheep. He was the underdog who everyone overlooked and counted out. The one who Goliath said, are you a dog that you come at me with a stick? He was the kid from a nothing family, from a nothing village, who rose up to be the people's champion through his own chutzpah. He was the one who, though he had done nothing wrong, Saul wanted with all of his heart to pin him to the wall with a spear. Right? David embodied the very idea that, that, that the good life is not just for the rich and the powerful, it was for the losers too. Right? David showed them that losers could become a somebody. And that's why 400 of them joined David at the cave. David was the leader of the losers. Right, that's so true about the kingdom, that the message of the kingdom resonates most with people who are poor and people who are poor in spirit. If you're a loser, if you're poor, if you're messed up, you know that you need help. That's not a very difficult thing to admit. The most difficult people to preach the good news of the kingdom of God to is the people whom uh, uh, Timothy Keller calls the spiritually middle class. Right? Comfortable people, respectable people, competent, middle-class, professional people. Because we have a hard time admitting, I'm a loser. I don't have everything together. I need a Savior. Saying that hurts. We're used to being the people who do the helping, not the people being helped. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, it's, it's interesting that uh, Jesus is pictured being born not in a stable, but in a cave. So if you look at, if you were to go to a nativity set in, in some Eastern Orthodox person's house, you would not see a barn, you would see a cave. And you think, what's happening? Well, that, there was a bunch of caves around Bethlehem. This is a potential place where Jesus could have been born. And I think that's so interesting when we think about the cave and David. Right, because David's hiding in a cave, it reminds us of this other king who was born in a cave, right? Who, who, who left the heights of heaven to become a loser for us. An alternative king with an alternative kingdom that operates according to alternative values that, that Herod, like Saul, sought to destroy. And Jesus' message didn't resonate with the successful or the self-righteous or the self-made. It was for the lepers, and the sinners, and the tax collectors, and the sick, and the deformed, and the demon-possessed, the losers, right? That's who was attracted to Jesus. That's who listened to him. And so the cave shows us that the revolutionary kingdom of God comes for and comes through the losers of this world, through a Jesus who is the king of all the losers. Right, so that's the cave and the kingdom. But how about David's thirst? And what it teaches us about the human condition. 
So this takes us to the second part of the reading from 2 Samuel 23, where David says, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Now, David, when he says this, is not literally thirsty. Where the cave of Adullam is located, it's in this valley, and it has plenty of water. So it's actually an ideal place. If you want to hide in a cave, this is a great place to hide in a cave. You've got lots of water. So David is not literally thirsty for a drink. What David is thirsty for is the waters of home. That place called home. Home where his life was much less glamorous, but much more simple. David is longing to go to that place where he's safe, where he knows who he is, where he's comfortable, where he belongs. This is a universal longing, isn't it? To go home, to a home like that. Don't we thirst for that too? Don't we wish we could go back to it again, even if it never really existed? We want to go back to it, to taste it again, to live in that place again. My mom used to talk about an idea like this when we were kids. She'd say, you know, if you ever get that feeling sometimes when you're looking at a beautiful sunset or, or you're standing by the shores of Lake Superior or, you know, you're having a glass of wine with friends and, and, you're, and you're laughing and you couldn't be happier, there's this joy in the moment, but there's also this twinge of pain because you realize that that moment is fleeting, that it can't last The sun will set, you'll leave the shore, your friends will go home. But these moments of pure love and pure joy are wonderful but so fleeting, so fleeting that it hurts that we can't get them back, that we can't go home. Right? It's like having kids and the cliche, it's so true, they grow up so fast, right? And we want them to be innocent forever and young. But you can't hold on to that. Right, David's saying, if only I could have one more drink from that place called home. Its waters are so sweet, I can almost taste them now. David's thirst is our thirst. Right? His, his longing is our longing. It is a very human thirst for something divine, something eternal, something that is unending. C.S. Lewis, in his writings often speaks of the inconsolable longing for something eternal that is embedded in us, a a desire that cannot be satisfied except by God. So if David were to have gone back home, if he were to turn back time and been a simple shepherd boy again, he wouldn't have found what he was looking for. He would have found only, again, something that was pointing him beyond his circumstances to the thing he was truly looking for, that thing which is beyond this world, that thirst which only God can slake. One of Lewis's arguments that he gives in favor of the reality of God's existence is that humans are created with all kinds of desires that are met. You know, we're, we're, we're hungry, so there's food. We're thirsty, so there's water. We get cold, so there's warmth. We're lonely, and there's friendship. We long for a far home in a far-off, undiscovered country called eternity, and, and so ought not that desire that is embedded within us actually be a desire that is enabled to be fulfilled. Doesn't it suggest that, that God's grace is, is not a fantasy, but a reality, that we long for that? And Jesus says, you know, if anyone thirsts, come to me, 
and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And here Jesus is echoing these words from the prophet Isaiah, which are beautiful words where he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. And the kingdom for people who have nothing. Can't buy it. It's given free. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant my steadfast, sure love for David. This thirst of David points us to the God who can satisfy it. It's this beautiful picture of those people who have nothing enjoying the most lavish, elaborate, de- delectable feast. And we come to Jesus because he quenches our thirst for eternity. In him we meet the one who we can trust to lead us to the home that we've never actually been to. But we know in our bones exists that we were made for it. And that he can lead us there because he came from there and he's going to bring us back. We thirst for a home with Jesus. All right, so the cave and the kingdom, uh, thirst and eternity. But the last thing we're going to look at is, is the offering, David's offering, and how it shows us we're supposed to live. So David expresses this longing for home, which we saw was really this existential longing for, for an eternal place. But Uh, David's mighty men don't hear it that way. They take David both literally and seriously, uh, and they go on a mission to get David an actual drink from the waters of Bethlehem. And at this point, we hear that the Philistines have occupied Bethlehem, and so Saul has marked David as a dead man. But these three put themselves in harm's way as a sheer act of love and devotion and loyalty to their commander. And so they go out on this crazy mission against impossible odds. And God darn it, if these guys don't actually bring back a drink of water to David. And when David sees this, he is floored. He he can't believe what his eyes are seeing. All he does is pour it on the ground. And we read this and we think, what a waste Those guys went through all that effort. They risked their lives. They were probably going to die. They did this. They brought it to David, and he just dumps it on the ground. But the text doesn't say that David poured it on the ground. It says he poured it out to the Lord. So it was an offering. And such an offering isn't a waste. It's a profound expression of gratitude. There's a couple amazing lessons about how we can live right here in this act of pouring it out to the Lord. So first is something that I'll say again and again and again and again and again. The proper response to grace is a life of gratitude. David received this water as a gift of sheer grace, and so his response was to be thankful. That's why when we become Christians, our desire is to please God, not not to earn God's favor or stay on God's good side. What we simply want to do with our lives is say thank you. Thank you for everything you've given me. The Christian life is one long thank you note to God. And we're entering into the season, you know, next three weeks, we'll be talking about stewardship. 
I think this is a really helpful framework to put around all of our stewardship when we're having those conversations. How do we, with our time, our talent, our treasure, our testimony, you know, how do we use them to say thank you to God and to bless other people? That's what stewardship is all about. Saying thank you because we've been given everything. And the second thing we learn from this offering is that once again, against all odds, victory is possible. Right? Again and again, the life of David shows us that God uses little people with great faith to do amazing things. Even foolish things. Right? Paul says that the gospel is foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those being saved, the gospel is God's wisdom and God's righteousness. And so one way we can say thank you for grace is we can be willing to be a fool for Christ. That's how I describe one of my great heroes in the faith, uh, G.K. Chesterton. He was a fool for Jesus. He was almost comically fat. He was quick with his wit, but he was so absent-minded that he would often find himself on the wrong train, going to the wrong place. He wasted his money on burgundy and handsome cabs. But Chesterton crossed swords with the greatest skeptics of his day. He endured scorn and ridicule. He defended unfashionable ideas, not because they were unfashionable, but because he believed they were true. And so this offering teaches us to be a fool for Christ. Because through our lives, the hidden wisdom of God will be revealed. The cave, the thirst, and the offering. Three simple moments that point us beyond themselves to the beautiful reality of the kingdom of God. Our profound longing for eternity and how we can live our lives in response to the sheer grace of God. To pour our lives out as an offering to Him. Because He is more than worth it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.